0: The year was 1994, it was January, it was one week from my 11th birthday, I was sleeping in my room when I was woken up by severe shaking, what was later called the big one had struck. It was a 94 Northridge earthquake, the epicenter was only about 20 miles from Burbank where I'm from. The shaking didn't last long, only about 20 seconds, but it was violent, our house was undamaged, but when the sun came up, the pictures of the devastation started coming in. You saw entire buildings, apartment complexes, parking structures completely collapsed, especially in Northridge. Also, entire sections of the 5 and the 10 freeway just fell to the ground. It would take months to clean up and years to rebuild. Amazingly, only 57 people died during this earthquake, which is still a tragic loss of life, but it just pales in comparison to other earthquakes. For example, a similar-sized earthquake struck Haiti in 2010, but the death toll was around 300,000. How could there be such a difference? And the answer comes down to building codes. In America, we're governed by strict building codes, especially when you're building on a fault line. But in many poor countries like Haiti, they don't have strict building codes. And even if they do, they're often thwarted by corruption and poverty. But sometimes there's just no building code that can stop a really big earthquake. In 2011, the city of Christchurch in New Zealand was flattened by an earthquake, about the same size as Northridge, but it only lasted 10 seconds. There was widespread destruction. They have strict building codes. What happened there? The answer to that is what's called liquefaction. That The city was built on sandy soil, and despite being compacted, when it gets waterlogged and then an earthquake strikes, it starts functioning as a liquid and basically turns into quicksand, and even that the strongest building is going to stand no chance. As for my childhood home in Burbank, we lived on a hill. And remember my dad saying granite or some rock used to run or would run all throughout those hills. And that probably explains why our house, our house remained unscathed. And none of this is surprising to you, I'm sure. It, this is a lesson as old as construction, that the foundation is the most important part of the house. When the foundation is unsound, no strong building will last But if the foundation is strong, your house becomes near immovable. This lesson is as old as time, but it was given to us in a most memorable way about 2,000 years ago by our Lord. You probably know the parable. He paints a vivid picture of two men, two builders, each building a house. One was a wise man who built his house on the rock. The other was a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then a great storm comes, and at this point, there's, there's no mystery what's going to happen next. That's, that's not the point. Everyone knows the house built on rock stands firm. The house built on sand collapses. It's precisely because this is such an obvious outcome that he can make a strong point. I mean, Clearly, everyone would agree that the man who built his house on the sand was a fool, right? Well, then what would you make of the person who builds his spiritual house on the sand? What would happen to the person who builds their spiritual life on the wrong foundation? Like Jesus says of that house, it's going to fall and great will be its fall. A great storm of judgment is coming. It's going to test all people and reveal their true condition before God. And only those who have their lives founded on the rock will endure. But what exactly is this right foundation? And what does it really mean to build our lives on the rock That and more we're going to discover this morning as we take a closer look at our passage. That'll be Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. So you can take your Bibles, open there now. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. And finally, after just a little bit of time, we arrive at the the very last words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, which we will be finishing today. I do say that tongue-in-cheek because we've actually spent about a year and a half considering the Sermon on the Mount studying, meditating, applying this sermon. Now that's all my fault, but I don't apologize because this is the Lord's greatest sermon, which makes it the greatest sermon ever preached. It's, it's worthy of plenty of our time because as we've seen, it's, it's filled with rich truth meant for our lives. But it does make you wonder, like, how do you end this sermon? How do you land this plane? How do you finish the greatest sermon ever? Jesus chooses to do so with a serious warning. Throughout this sermon, he's been contrasting two ways. You might expect it to be the way of the Lord versus the way of the world. But no, that's not the case here. He's making a contrast throughout between the way of the Lord and the way of the religious. Everyone around Jesus at the time was very religious. There were no pagans or Gentiles listening to this sermon. These were all Jews, very religious. They relied on their birthright and their religious tradition to guarantee their entrance into the kingdom. But it doesn't work that way. They were led astray by their religious leaders. They knew nothing of God's true kingdom or his true righteousness, they only had self righteousness. And so, throughout, Jesus is setting the record straight. He wants them to know what true discipleship looks like, and hence this contrast throughout between the true and the false believer. He had a few true disciples at the time, those who were actually following him. Then there was the crowds who who came near. They thought it was good enough to to hear Jesus. Those same two groups still exist in the church today. But only those who follow him as Lord and walk in his ways will be the ones who enter his kingdom. We've seen this contrast throughout between the way of the Lord and the way of the religious but he brings it all to a head in his conclusion. He draws a sharp line in the sand and calls for a decision. That conclusion we learned began back in verses 13 and 14, which we can read again. Matthew seven thirteen. So he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Here again, there's our two ways. Only one of them leads to life. There are tons of very religious people on the broad path leading to destruction. They think it's enough to come close to Jesus. They'll call him Lord. They'll, They'll hear him. But they stop short of obeying him. And to enter the narrow gate of faith in Christ is to follow him. But all those on the broad path are deceived. And that explains why next Jesus warns against deceivers, verse 15, wolves in sheep's clothing. And after that, he warns against the self-deceived, verse 21. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Again, he's not making a contrast between that the unbeliever, the pagan, and the Christian. This is between two professing believers, but one is false. As he says in verse 22, there are, there's going to be many, not a few, many who confess him as Lord, who will say, Lord, Lord, but they're turned away from the kingdom on the last day. Why? Well, as he says in verse 21, they did not do the will of the father or in verse 23, they practiced lawlessness. They never actually knew Jesus as their Lord And he never knew them. So he bids them to depart eternally. We found this is one of the most sobering warnings in all of scripture. It exposes the reality of false faith and false assurance. A subject we've been considering the past two weeks. But now it's time to move on. We come to his very final words in this sermon. And his strong warning continues though, as he he builds a further contrast between the true and the false. Throughout his conclusion, we've seen a contrast between two ways, two trees, and two confessions. Now, lastly, with these final words, there's one more contrast between two foundations. Let's read what this is all about. Matthew 4, or 7, rather 24 through 27, and we'll get the last two verses at the end. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man this passage has many similarities with the one that came before, verses 21 through 23. They're both dealing with false believers. You have both groups are coming close to Jesus, but they both stop short of obeying him. And that is the key point. Both of these groups are condemned in these two passages because they did not actually obey Jesus as Lord. But there are some differences between these two final passages showing how Jesus is exposing the false disciple from from all angles. The first group thought it was enough to confess Jesus with their lips. The second group thought it was enough to hear Jesus with their ears. Both are wrong. It's not enough. The first group consists of those who say, but do not do. The second group consists of those who hear, but do not do. And again, both are wrong. We've learned that the cardinal mark of saving faith is obedience. The true disciple is one who hears the word and and then does the word. But these false disciples proved their faith was a sham. And they receive only condemnation from the Lord. He ends this sermon with with a warning, a strong warning. But again, the fact that he tells us what will happen on the last day in advance is mercy. Mercy. It's all point of warning. He's giving a warning so that those who hear him but don't obey him might still turn, repent, and follow him unto real life now, today, before it's too late, before this day of the storm comes. And all of us in response to this need to examine our lives and make sure we are truly founded on this rock. So let's do that together. Let's walk through this passage. I want to show you a series of five contrasts That we might all discern between true and false discipleship. A series of five contrasts to help us discern between true and false discipleship. So we'll walk through these verses. We'll start with two builders. First, two builders. Let's just consider this this little parable as he gives it and all of its details. Then we can come back. We can connect all the dots to the spiritual lesson he's actually giving. So, this parable itself begins with two builders. They're similar in many respects. A couple guys. They're both building a house. They're both building their own house. The main difference between them comes in the fact the first is called a wise man, verse 24. The second is called a foolish man, verse 26. Now, regarding the wise man, this is not the classic Greek word for wisdom. So, So, don't think philosophical wisdom. This is a word for practical wisdom. It's actually most often translated prudent or sensible. The first builder, he knows what he's doing. He's not like the architecture student who has theoretical knowledge, but has no knowledge of building an actual house. No, he's a builder. He, he knows how to build the right way. And he's not going to take any shortcuts. This is in contrast to the second man who is called foolish, Now, the word for foolish, verse 26, in the Greek is moros. In the neuter, the word is moron. And yes, this is from where we get our English word moron. Now, it's not used here in a derogatory sense as if Jesus is just name-calling, but it's used as a description of a person's heart and mind. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Then he said, if that salt becomes tasteless... It's worthless. That word tasteless is actually a derived word from this Greek word moros. Tasteless. It, it means dull. Salt that has lost its taste is dull. And people who have lost their senses are dull. Dim. This second builder lacks sense. He does not know what he's doing. He has neither book smarts nor street smarts. Like the proverbial fool, he, he's hasty. I just want to get started. I want a house. I know enough to put it together and forget preparation and codes and planning. Just, just start building. He's the type who would refuse counsel. His ideas are best. He trusts himself. The virtues of the wise man in Proverbs like patience, forethought, discernment, they're all lacking from this second builder. And in his haste, he pays no attention to the most important part of building, and that is the foundation. This leads to the second contrast, two foundations, two foundations. These two foundations are the focal point of this parable. It is this contrast from which Jesus will give his punchline later. Now, before we get to that point, let's look at these two foundations. Regarding the first builder, the wise man, what does he do? Verse 24, he builds his house on the rock. This is that the greek word petra for rock don't think rock as in something you can throw this word refers to bedrock this is the type of rock you can't move like a sheer cliff or the rock of gibraltar or more locally the, the moral rock you know in world war ii the navy used moral rock for target practice they barely made any dent it's just an unmovable part of the earth And when you find such a bedrock on flat land, you have a perfect place to build a house or a city because it's not going to move. The wise man knows that these clear skies are not going to last. The present conditions will change. Sooner or later, there's going to be a storm. Seasons will change. But he wants his house to last well beyond the day of a great storm. So with much foresight, he's building with the future in mind which leads him to found his house on this unmovable rock. And when Jesus tells this parable in Luke six, he adds one little detail that this wise man dug deep to reach the foundation. He was willing to work and dig deep to make sure he hit the rock. It is vastly more difficult to build a house the right way. I mean, the, the foolish man, he might finish his entire house before the wise man is done with his foundation. But that doesn't concern him. He's patient. He's prudent. He's the type of guy, like, I want to do it the right way the first time. Make sure it lasts. And so whatever he has to do, he's going to get to that foundation of rock. But not so for the foolish man. And now it becomes clear why he's so foolish. Verse 26. He's foolish because he builds his house on the sand. This is not just sandy soil. This word for sand is talking like the sand of the beach or a desert. It's the exact opposite of rock. It's loose, it's unstable, it's movable. I mean, it's great for drainage, but too much water too fast just will wash sand away. That's why it obviously makes for a terrible foundation. You could build a house with like the best and strongest framing, but if your foundation is sand, the whole thing is just going to get swept away in a flood. I remember seeing some video of the tsunami in Japan in 2011. And there is this entire house, still perfectly assembled, roof intact. Looked like a perfect house, just floating along. I remember thinking, like, that is an amazingly well-built house. <laughs> it's just too bad they had a poor foundation. And as for the foolish builder, it's evident he lived in an area with, where great storms were possible. But he did not take that into account. He just He wanted prime real estate. He wanted that beachfront property at any cost. Now today, if a builder built a house on such an unsound foundation, if he's cutting corners, cheating codes, we would call him corrupt. Because he knows better. At the same time, he reasons like, well, I'm getting paid and it's not my house. But you realize why this builder, he's not corrupt. He really is foolish. Because he's building his own house. No builder would ever put himself at risk. He would not cut corners when he's building his own house. But that is precisely what this foolish man is doing by building his own house on the sand. And for some time, maybe several years, it looks like his gamble paid off. He's got this great house, beach view. Each year, the hurricane misses him. Each year, the floods, they never come. His house is fine. But the wise man knows just sooner or later, there's going to be a great storm. And it will test both of these houses. And then what will happen? We find out in the next contrast, two outcomes. Thirdly, two outcomes. So far, these two men have built their houses in parallel. The only difference being the foundation. And now they're going to go through the same storm in parallel. The only difference being the outcome. Verse 25 introduces us to this great storm. And at first tests the house built on rock. Verse 25 says that the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and slammed against that house. This is obviously a picture of a violent storm. Starting with rain, as it always does. Rain is good. It's life-giving. But too much, too fast is life-taking. The threat of rain is flooding. And hence, verse 25 says that the floods came. Or more literally, it says that the rivers came. It's where it speaks of swollen, overflowing rivers. It's what happens when there's too much rain, too fast. The water has nowhere else to go. It overflows its banks. It pours into the towns nearby. We've all seen how flooding can inundate a house. Not very long ago, there was Hurricane Ian, and you know, I was seeing footage of a family. They're trapped in the second story of their house, and the water had risen all the way up through the stairwell, which means the whole first floor was underwater. <clears throat> and the add to this, the wind. As if the flooding wasn't bad enough, you've got wind battering slamming against the house i mean in california here we have pretty mild storms there's been a few times the wind outside was really crazy you're hearing these violent sounds the house is shaking part of you wonders like is this house going to hold like what's going to happen here but the wise man can rest easy his house is safe because he built his foundation on the rock jesus gives us the outcome for him verse 25 his house it did not fall And then he gives the reason for it had been founded on the rock. Again, we see how the central element to this parable is the foundation. This rock was strong enough to give this house stability to enable it to endure the greatest test. But not so for the foolish man and his house, his house built on sand stood no chance. He endured the same storm. Obviously, his house was in the same general location. He received the same rains, the same floods, the same winds. Both of these houses were tested and tried in the same way. But the outcome was quite different. Verse 27 says, the foolish man's house fell, collapsed. Maybe the roof was blown off. Maybe the walls caved in. Maybe, Maybe the whole thing was just swept away. But... Whatever the case, it was utter devastation. And then Jesus adds for emphasis when he says, and great was its fall. It's not just talking about a few broken windows. This house was wiped off the map. And the only difference in these outcomes, the only thing we can attribute the difference to was the foundation. The only difference here that he built his house on a foundation of sand. That's all that Jesus brings out. The different foundation. Now, at this point, we have a simple but powerful lesson, one which all first-year civil engineers should take to heart. Don't build your house on sand. Like, build on a sturdy foundation, right? But we all know Jesus is not simply trying to educate us on best building practices. Being the greatest teacher, and as he does often in this greatest sermon, he takes that which is known and familiar and uses it to teach us about that which is unknown and unfamiliar. And so, this all has a point. There's a spiritual lesson behind this. And now, by way of analogy, we can receive it. And so, what is, what is the real contrast Jesus is forming here? It is this, number four, two disciples. Two disciples. He actually reveals the point of comparison he's making at the very beginning. So, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a mystery here. He says at the beginning of verse 24. says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man. In the verse 26, conversely, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man. And so it's very obvious these two builders in this little parable both represent two different types of followers of Jesus. They're the same in that they both hear his word. They hear the word of the Lord. That's the same. By this, by when he says, hear these words of mine, he has in mind most directly, it has to be the Sermon on the Mount, but this would equally apply to all of his words. These people have heard Jesus, they've made some move to identify with him. The fact that verse 24 begins with, therefore, connects it to that previous passage, verses 21 through 23. Most likely, Jesus still has in mind this group of people who, who call him, Lord, Lord. And back in verses 21 through 23, why were those false believers condemned in the end? Well, it's because they, he says, they practiced lawlessness. Now here in this next text, we see their condemnation from the other angle. Not only did they practice lawlessness, but they failed to practice righteousness. They, They did not obey the Lord. Their true colors are revealed in that they hear the word of the Lord, but they don't live it out. And so, once again, very consistently, Jesus makes the same dividing line in telling apart the true and false disciple all throughout. What's the dividing line? Obedience, or bearing fruit, obeying God's commands. Same as it has been all throughout chapter 7. Look, it's good to listen to the Sermon on the Mount, to, to have all these studies on it. That's great. It is necessary for all disciples to hear the words of Jesus but it's not sufficient that you merely hear them and even agree with them. Don't confuse intellectual assent with saving faith. You can nod in agreement all you want. But the true believer who has true faith is going to demonstrate that agreement by then actually like doing what the Lord says. So Now that we know the main contrast Jesus is forming in this parable is between the true and the false disciple. Now, we can connect the rest of the dots here and draw out the implications. So first, this means the true disciple is the wise man, right? The true disciple, he's prudent, he's sensible. He has eyes to see real kingdom righteousness. He has a new heart to desire it. He's very happy to build his life on the spiritual, or to build his spiritual life on the rock. But that also means the false disciple is the fool. He lacks sense and perspective, and understanding. But keep in mind, you, you can't always easily tell apart the true and the false. We presume that these two houses looked the same on the outside, just like tares closely resemble wheat. Both groups surely would call Jesus Lord. Both appear to be building Christian lives. Both externally would be doing the same things. They're both attending church, reading the Bible, listening to sermons, singing songs, giving some money. They both have sound doctrine. The difference between them is not going to be immediately apparent to the outside observer. That's because foundations are often hidden from view. But if you were to closely examine their lives, maybe follow them around, see them when they are alone, you'd start to see the difference. It's not a question of do they hear the Lord's teaching? Do they receive it? Do they even believe it? But who obeys it? Who puts it into practice? Who repents when they stumble? Who is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? The phony believer doesn't, especially when they're alone. The false believer is spiritually dim. They they don't really want to know God. They're not seeking God. They're seeking something from God. They want a blessing from him of some sort, and they serve him to that end. But They fall short of a pure, sincere, wholehearted heart of worship. There's no convicting, burning desire in their heart to be like Christ. They just want to be comfortable. They want to be happy, but they're not really interested in how Jesus defines happiness or blessing. Like the Beatitudes, where he tells us. But you don't really see from them hungering and thirsting for righteousness per the Beatitudes. Scripture elsewhere has much to say in profiling and calling out the false disciple. For example, Titus one, 15 and 16. It says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient. And worthless for any good deed. Pretty similar to the people in 2 Timothy 3 1 and 2, and also verse 5, where Paul says, I realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And he says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. They're clinging to an external form of godliness. And then you have James. And go ahead, actually, and quickly turn to James chapter 1, if you want to follow along. James chapter 1. Now, over these months, I've mentioned several times how James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his epistle, he echoes the Sermon on the Mount all the time. And in James chapter 1, he's forming his own contrast between the true and the false believer. And he, likewise, picks on the difference between those who hear and those who obey. James makes a huge deal out of hearing the word of God. He says in chapter one, verse 21, he tells us to receive the word implanted for it is able to save your souls. I mean, hearing and and taking in God's word is extremely important, but taking in the word does no good if, if it doesn't impact your life, if it doesn't reach your soul, you don't do anything about it. Look at verse 22. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Don't be deluded, i.e. don't be self-deceived, same as what Jesus would say. I hope you don't think that all God wants for you is to to listen to his words, nod in agreement, but then you never actually conform your life to his will. And to show how ridiculous this is, James gives a ridiculous analogy in verses 23 and 24. He says in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And so the picture here is a person that they're staring at their face in a mirror. Back then they did not have... Mirrors like we do today, a perfect mirror is mostly polished bronze, an imperfect reflection. So you kind of have to study to look at yourself. And so this person, it's not a passing glance. It's like they're studying their image that they see back in this mirror. But after taking a good long look, he moves away and then instantly forgets what he saw. He forgets what, his own image. It's like how, how ridiculous is that? Or to use the language of Jesus, how moronic. James's point is that it is equally ridiculous to stare into God's Word and take it in, but then you immediately forget, forget it all and do nothing about it. And James's mirror analogy is no accident, because God's word is often likened to a mirror in that it shows us our own spiritual image. It shows us what we're really like, and the mirror doesn't lie. Scripture cuts us open and lays us bare before God. All of our sins are revealed in high definition. As we just look into scripture, we see God's standard. It's meant to convict and show us all the ways we we don't measure up. Now, as Christians, we know, you should know, we're not saved or justified by keeping this standard, by keeping the law. Of course not. the law, it convicts us of sin. That's meant to make us run to Christ, the only savior, the only hope for forgiveness. He's the Savior who died on the cross to pay for all of our sins and rose from the dead. It's only by his grace through faith that we can be justified or made right with God, not by keeping the law. But know this, after being justified by faith alone, he happily sends us back to his word, back to places like the Sermon on the Mount and says, we can now live like this. Now live this out. Now be conformed the perfect image of Christ in your daily practice. And this is how we glorify God in our sanctification. And in that regard, we have a long way to go. As we hear his word, the spirit convicts us of our wrongdoing. But then as we walk by the spirit, we're able to grow and bear the fruit of the spirit. This is how we please God in our sanctification. But James, like Jesus. Highlights the problem with, with a person who calls themselves a Christian, but they just stop with looking in the mirror. That, it goes no further than just looking in the mirror. They see all the ways they fall short. They, knew, they do nothing about it. Today, this person reads the Bible, listens to sermon. Every now and then, feels convicted. That they know in their heart of hearts, they're not walking the walk. Their spiritual reflection doesn't measure up. But any conviction is very short-lived. They forget whatever it was by lunch. And they never, ever change. Many people, unfortunately, believe it's enough to just hear the word of God. That, that's, that's all that really makes you disciple that. That's enough. They act as if discipleship consists of just going to church, agreeing with whatever you hear, tell the preacher a good sermon, and then go on your way. But as soon as they leave, the word just evaporates from their mind now I wonder in Matthew 7, of all those false believers who are turned away from the kingdom, how many of them had listened to thousands of sermons their whole life? How many sermons have you heard over the course of your years? But then what does, what does your life have to show for it? And what might that say and reflect about the state of your salvation? The fact is, as Jesus reveals, he says, there's not a few, but many who are deceived into thinking they're disciples when they're not. We know that bearing fruit doesn't save us, but he says the one who bears fruit proves to be his disciple. That just means what do you make of a person who calls him Lord, but they don't bear fruit. They don't obey God. They don't repent when they fall short. It looks like a house built on sand. It looks like insincere faith, but rather, what does Jesus, Jesus himself over and over say is, is the measure of love and faith? We're saved by faith in him to love him. What, how do we measure love and faith? He says over and over, obedience is the measuring stick. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23 through 24. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word and my father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And then James himself adds verse 25. If you're still in James one, he says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This obedience does not save us, but there is great joy and blessing to be found on the narrow way of Christ. And for those who love him, who know him, his commandments are not burdensome. They're, they're a blessing in themselves. But all those who, who come near him, but then disregard his word, Need to be warned. And that's what happens back in Matthew 7. You can go back to Matthew 7. The storm in this parable is a clear allusion to divine judgment. Jesus still has in mind the day of judgment from the previous passage. It's also no coincidence. These two terms, the wise man, the foolish man. The exact terms show up later in Matthew 25 in the parable of the 10 virgins. Given, likewise, to tell people to prepare for the Lord's coming. And then Matthew 24, the storm and the flood reappear, prefiguring eschatological judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, a great storm was used as a metaphor for God's wrath. It's coming, and his judgment will reveal who is true. Now, at that point, there's no more mystery. Everyone's foundation will be exposed. Those found in Christ, whose lives have been built on the rock of his word, and obedience to it, they'll stand in that judgment. The rest will be swept away. And as Jesus said of the house built on sand, it it fell. And then he says, and great was its fall. And that's his last word in the sermon. And great was its fall. Let's pray. That's how he's ending the sermon. That's, That's quite a way to end a sermon, right? Just by saying, and great was its fall. End of story. This is, this is hardly how upbeat pastors would end a sermon today. You can't leave them like this. It's that's just too harsh, too unloving. I'm convinced many Christians today would hate the preaching of Jesus if they really heard it. But he's making a point here and we have to repeat it. And all these warnings at the end of chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, that they're coming by way of love. Because Christ knows this storm of God's wrath, it is coming. And it's going to test all men but you know, why is he telling us about it in advance? Why not just keep it a secret and let it, let it be? But he's telling us about it in advance because there's still time to change course and enter the narrow way. And if you are deceived, far better to learn about your self-deception now than on that day, because on that day, there's there's no more hope. But now there is. You can still repent. You can still turn to Jesus with Real eyes of faith. Actually submit your whole life, no more holding back, to him as Lord. Just bow down. Lay it all before him. Submit to his lordship. Build your life on the rock of his word. And, and then you show it by doing what he says. And look, we know that no disciple of Jesus perfectly obeys his words in this life. There's not a single one of us. We all wrestle with the flesh. But even as a believer, when you encounter these types of warnings in scripture, you're meant to take it to heart. Look in the mirror. Examine self. We're not. No believer is scared of looking in the mirror. What do you see? What, what does your life show? But it's it's only good to ask yourself: do, do you love this Lord? Do you show that love by keeping His commands? Do you wrestle against your sinful flesh when you fall? When you disobey, do you repent? Does it grieve you? Do you strive to work out your salvation in fear and trembling? Do you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? The believer is meant to live in confidence, not fear. For in Christ, we know that the day of judgment, it's a day of triumph for us. It's all because of him, just being found in him. Are you pointed in his direction? Are you even walking in his way? Make sure your life is founded on him, on his word. And you know that by the fact that you are not merely a hearer of his word, but a doer. You're actually walking in his way. And may your faith withstand this greatest test. And then you need to know that your faith in Christ, it's, it's not misplaced. To base your entire life on him and his word, it's, it's not a mistake because he is truly worthy. His word is no ordinary word. This sermon is no ordinary sermon. And this teacher is, is no ordinary teacher. And as a final thought, we can give a final contrast now. That'd be number five, two teachers. And this comes out in the last two verses of the chapter, two teachers. Let's let's finish up here. Verse 28, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And with this, Sermon on the Mount has concluded. We finally get to see the response of the crowds who had gathered around him. It is one of amazement. Now That word, it's tricky to translate. It literally means they were struck out of themselves. And maybe the best English word to translate it would be dumbfounded. They were just taken aback by his teaching. They'd never heard anything like this. There is an amazing breadth and depth to his teaching. But every subject was handled with skill and precision. It's like he knew what he was talking about. There, are, there are no throwaway verses or thoughts in the Sermon on the Mount. There's not a single trivial phrase. There's nothing trivial or superficial about this. Every word has deep meaning. Yet it's simple. A, a child could understand it. It has wisdom, depth, insightful. It's profound, but also straightforward. But the main reason of their amazement is revealed in verse 29 where it says he was teaching them as one having authority, not as one of their scribes. Here, this is the final contrast that Matthew himself brings out, which is between two teachers, Jesus and the scribes. Now, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were the religious authorities, the religious leaders of the Jews in that day. They had set themselves up as experts of the law of God they did not actually exposit God's word. All of their teaching was based on tradition. Their real authority was the tradition of man, the tradition of the rabbis, the teachings of the elders. And whenever they taught, they're not, again, expositing the word. They were known for just endlessly quoting previous rabbis. This rabbi said this, this scribe said this. The only way they could build a case or make an argument was by appealing to some other human authority. But that was so completely different from the teaching of Jesus. He had no regard for the tradition of the elders. He paid no attention to the rabbinical teaching tradition. Remember, he was formally untrained, he had no formal rabbinic training. But I mean, what did he need that for? He, he didn't need their authority, he had his own inherent authority because he's the Son of God. You recall in the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus repudiated the authority of the scribes many times back in chapter five, six times you have this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, that's not him correcting the old Testament. That's him correcting the scribal misinterpretation of the old Testament. And then to second, to set the record straight, he's not quoting someone else. He's just, he's appealing to himself. He invokes his own word as absolute truth. Recall the Old Testament prophets, they identified themselves and they said, thus says the Lord. They knew they were just messengers, just men, a derived authority. Thus says the Lord. Jesus, though, never says that. He never says, thus says the Lord. He, he says in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, truly, truly, I say to you. It's like, it's like someone swearing by their own name. That's because Jesus did not view himself as just another prophet. He viewed himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy. Back in Matthew 5. He's the one of whom all the other prophets were speaking about. And don't forget here how in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus himself completely supplants the titles and the roles of God. Who is the Lord, Lord? Jesus. Who decides who enters the kingdom? Jesus. What is the deciding factor? Whether or not he knows them. And how is judgment expressed in the words, depart from me? You see how Jesus has made himself like this great final eschatological judge of all mankind. And then he has the audacity to make the final test this. Whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them. And he expects us to base our entire lives on his word. As John Stott, commentator says, quote, how is it that this carpenter from Nazareth can make himself the central figure of the judgment day? End quote. But we all know the answer. It's because he's someone more. He's more than a carpet, more than a prophet, no scribe, no no rabbi. He really is the son of God, the divine Messiah, the Lord, Lord, the Lord of Lords. That means he really is worthy of your obedience, allegiance, discipleship. It also means all of his words are true. They're absolute truth. They're timeless. They're universal. Everything it said, everything he said about the kingdom, its nature, its entrance, its citizens, it's all true. We find that these last two verses in Matthew 7, they're not a useless epilogue. Matthew is now redirecting us from the sermon to the preacher. The only time where it's acceptable to pay more attention to the preacher than the sermon is here. He's highlighting his authority. That word becomes a big theme in Matthew, we'll see later. This functions, though, to affirm all the bold claims Jesus made throughout the sermon. We're meant to, to leave and, and really consider how we respond Hearing this sermon, there's, there's really no choice. We, we too must follow him and obey him. He is savior. He is judge. It is not enough to merely admire Jesus, even to love his teaching. You might recall throughout, I've mentioned how historic figures like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King Jr., they loved the Sermon on the Mount. They called themselves Sermon on the Mount Christians. They admired his words. They viewed Jesus as a great moral teacher. But they rejected his demands, they rejected obedience, they rejected other things he said, they certainly rejected the words of his apostles, but it doesn't work like that. It does no good to merely admire his words, to admire his teaching. If you stop short of obeying all of his words, you just might hear from him on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not enough to admire him, it's not enough to be like the crowd and be amazed by him. You see how there's an implicit critique of this crowd. Jesus finishes the sermon by saying all must hear him and obey him. Then Matthew tells us how the crowd, they heard him. They heard him all right, but we're left wondering, are are they going to obey? Are they going to follow him? Will their amazement turn into discipleship? We're left with the impression by their lack of response that this crowd seems more like the many on the broad path of destruction who hear his words but don't heed it. As for us, I can only hope that these same words don't fall on deaf ears today. We've devoted 44 sermons to the Sermon on the Mount and many more on issues related to it. We can do that because these are the words of God. They're rich, they're powerful, they're insightful for life. But, like, now what? Or you might say, so what? Well, now, as always, there's only one choice for us to make. It is to follow him. Let us follow him. Let us be wise. Let us be those who show our love for this Lord by hearing his words and keeping them. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we exalt you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures, using men, apostles to to pen it, inspired by the Spirit, transmitted down through the ages, in our hands, the privilege we have of your word in our hands today. We were not there 2,000 years ago to to sit on that green hillside above the Sea of Galilee to hear the Lord teach words of life, but you wanted us to be there and hear that. At the least, you've given us the record of this greatest message from the greatest preacher ever. These are words of life given to show the way to the kingdom, to show the, the, the true and narrow way of discipleship. you also warn against the broad false path. Not always easy to hear, but still that the mirror needs to be looked at. We, we must peer in and see ourselves. Do we measure up? We know we're only saved by faith in the savior. Grant us faith for any here who do not know him by faith, give it to them. And any who've been deceived with the false faith, open their eyes as they examine their lives and if they might see they've, they've never yielded in obedience to the Lord. What does it say about their belief? We'll trust you to convict them and, and draw them to yourself. May the word penetrate, convict all of us. We, 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 we can't please you apart from this Savior, but in him, we know you are eternally happy with us. Now, because we love you, we love this Savior. We want to follow him. Convict us to obey. This is how we glorify you. It's how we show Christ in us. This is how we show our love for him, by keeping his commandments. This makes us wise. This makes us prudent. This makes us blessed. We thank you for all your blessings as they come to us. And may we just show our light before men, that they may see our good works and come to likewise glorify our good God in heaven, when he's given us his perfect son to teach, to preach, to die, to rise, to return for his people. May we be prepared for the final day with our faith, our obedient faith in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.